Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And today I have my first co-host, <laughs> uh, Guy Rube, uh, Professor of Law at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. And we're going to be talking to Jake Linford, Associate Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law, about his work on trademarks and linguistic theory. I'm glad to be here. Welcome, Jake. <laughs> so maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about what linguistic theory is in the first place and how you're using it in a trademark context. So the, the linguistic theory that I look into, a lot of it is about kind of usage of language and especially the way words change over time, the way language changes over time. Uh, and, and part of the reason I, I dig into that sort, of, uh, that sort of literature and that sort of study is Trademark law has some theories about the way consumers use language as trademarks. Trademarks as language. The way consumers use trademarks. And those theories aren't necessarily borne out when you start to look at the way consumers really use language. So, and I don't know if you want me to dive into one of my projects. So let me give you the elevator pitch on the most recent paper I did in this space. Trademark law has a hierarchy of protectability. So if a term is generic, like computer for computers... You can't get a trademark in that, even if you could prove that 95% of consumers see the term as source signifying. If a term tells you a product characteristic, like tasty for bread or seal tight for fasteners, you've got to show secondary meaning. You've got to give some evidence, could be direct evidence of consumer surveys, or relatively direct evidence, could be proxy evidence about how much volume you move, how much advertising, etc., how long you've been in the market. You can't get protection in a descriptive mark until you can show that secondary meaning. There are other marks that are considered stronger. You get automatic protection. At the very far end is a fanciful mark. And a fanciful mark is a made-up or a coined term like Xerox for photocopiers, right? Word didn't really mean anything when they picked it. And so the presumption in trademark law is because it's a meaningless term that they are using as a trademark from the first jump, it has automatic source significance. And the the cash out for that is we give it super broad, super strong protection from the first jump. Now, what what linguists can tell you is that terms that that don't have any meaning as a a lexical matter, they haven't picked up meaning yet, they don't Mm -hmm. treat it as a word, might still have meaning that's communicated by the sound. It's called sound symbolism. Here's the way that works. This is the question I'll usually ask. Your, your, your listeners can play along at home. Imagine you've got two creatures. One of them is rounded. One of them is spiky. That's the difference between the two creatures. One of them is named Kiki. One of them is named Booba. Which one's the <laughs> spiky one? Well, give him a second to write down the answer at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, guy. I don't think we've played this game before. Which one's the spiky one? Kiki? Kiki's the spiky one. <laughs> 90- you got it right. I won! Ninety percent of people will say Kiki's the spiky one. Well, because Boba sounds like a ball. <laughs> exactly, right? Kiki Boba. There's a, there's another test that uh, Edward Sapir at the University of Chicago did, where he asked people, imagine two tables. One of them's called Mill. One of them's called Mal. Which one's bigger? Any guesses? Mao seems... Mao's bigger. It's the length of the vowel. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Uh, some, depending on who he asked, somewhere between 70 and 80% of speakers, native English speakers, native Chinese speakers, adults, children. You can find lots of these sound symbols. Some of them will communicate color. Some of them communicate size, friendliness versus hostility, male, female, gender categories. All sorts of things can be conveyed by the sounds in a word, even if the word is nonsense. Wow. 
even if the word doesn't yeah. have its own meaning. And is that cross-language? So I haven't done as much studies across language, but my understanding is some of these are similar across languages. There's a theory for that, and I don't have enough background to tell you whether I subscribe to the theory. But there are some thoughts that, you know, the shape of the mouth itself, the fact that you have to make a larger cavity in your mouth to make an ah sound as opposed to an eh sound, that's one of the things that conveys. Plosives have different kind of... Uh, con they, they communicate different things than sibilants. Now, I haven't done a lot of cross-linguistic study to know how far that goes language to language, but the initial look suggested it did go across languages. So do we see that in trademarks? Do they like common trademarks that you can see the same phenomenon, I assume? So, so where you see it... So what courts tend to do right now is to say um, that if it's a fanciful term, it's a completely made-up term, uh, you, it gets super strong protection, so that if the sounds are the same, and the pr the senior user's mark is completely is a made up word, the presumption is all of the similarities are pernicious or evidence okay. of bad faith, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some famous learned hand opinions from the 40s uh, dealing with pharma, late 30s, early 40s, I want to say, dealing with pharmaceuticals, where the presumption is it's a name I coined in the pharmaceutical context. Well, the fact that you've come close to it at all, I think it was actually Listerine versus some other Lister brand. Now, mm. interestingly enough, if you have a scientific background, you understand that that is referring to a certain, you know, a certain medical diagnosis or a certain prognosis. But for the common user, they don't understand yeah. that, right? And so what happens is, the presumption is, the fact that I'm similar to the senior user where they have this made-up term suggests that I was deliberately copying them and in bad faith. Now... Barton Beebe did a study back in 2005 where if you know two things, you can know the plaintiff will always win. Does the court think the marks are similar, and does the court think the defendant acted in bad faith? Mm. And that's yeah. potentially a problem mm -hmm. once you understand sound symbolism, given that there could be non-bad faith, non-free-riding reasons yeah. to want to use those sounds. Mm -hmm. So the, the way the paper cashes out is then, Courts ought to at least be sensitive to the question of sound symbolism and ideally consider evidence presented that mm -hmm. some of these similarities are due to the sound symbols and what they communicate as opposed to necessarily free writing. So is this, can we maintain the hierarchy the same, just saying those are not random, or does this mean that the hierarchy itself, something is wrong with the hierarchy? I I don't think there's strong enough evidence to say there's something wrong with the hierarchy per se. I think the evidence isn't quite so dispositive, right? And, and part of the difficulty is, what does the sound symbol mean? Mm -hmm. All right, so the categories, we talked about generic and descriptive. That's on the weak protection or no protection end. Fanciful marks are on the strong protection end. There's two other categories. Arbitrary, which is, I use a word we know in a brand new way. Apple for computers, or Apple for records, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. There, there's a meaning, but the mm. meaning I pick is so uh, so incongruous, it is, it is uh, uh, different enough in a way that the use suggests to you or indicates to you that it's trademark use as opposed to something that conveys something about mm. the brand. Now, there's a catch, a, a kind of an in-between in catch-basic <coughs> category called suggestive between descriptive and arbitrary. And courts actually, early on, weren't sure what to do with suggestive marks. So if you think uh, penguin for air conditioners, mm. right? Penguin is... Makes you think cold. Pe yes. Penguin makes you think cold and thus yeah. suggests a characteristic of an air conditioner. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you could argue, and in fact I argued in another paper, 
that the real difference between kind of the metonymic use, tasty for bread, for example, mm -hmm. and metaphoric use like penguin for air conditioner, the way consumers use those, there's some studies about how consumers see those, those might not be as different yeah. as courts treat them. There's a big dividing line where it's, if it's suggestive, if I persuade a court that a mark's suggestive, I can use it from the first jump without showing evidence of secondary meaning. If a, the defendant yeah. persuades the court that it's descriptive, then I've got to show evidence of secondary meaning. Mm. That's a big divide where if you look at the linguistic evidence, the semiotic evidence, semantic evidence, it seems less likely that that gap is reasonable. Now, that's a long answer to your question. To go back to your question, if we think sound symbolism suggests product categories as opposed to describes the yeah. product, and we think there should be a big gap between suggestive and descriptive marks, at most you'd say in some cases some arbitrary <coughs> marks are more suggestive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's already kind of a place in the doctrine for that. There's a case, one case I remember, Survivor, which is like we had surfing and Survivor. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. There, that's a coined term, but with two regular meanings, and the question was, do we treat it as fanciful or do we treat it as suggestive? Mm -hmm. Right, so there is some fuzziness in those mm -hmm. categories already. What, what's the advantage to trademark claimants to having to not having to show secondary meaning. I mean, it seems like if, if there's no secondary meaning, then it's not doing any trademark work, right? Well, the the advantage is if it's an inherently distinctive mark, we presume the secondary mm. meaning. Mm. We presume that consumers see it as source signifying. Now, there is a way for defendants to push back on that in litigation, where we will have questions of kind of inherent strength. What category did I pick? How closely is the mark? I shouldn't say pick, but what category mm. should I pick? But how closely is the mark related to the good? Mm -hmm. Fanciful marks, there is no relationship at all, at least not an obvious one. With descriptive marks, there's a very close relationship. The bigger the gap, the more we presume consumers will see it as source signifying. Mm. But, a mark, but, a, but a defendant can challenge or can push back uh, on the commercial strength of the mark, and if a court concludes the mark is commercially weak, that does, in effect, narrow mm. uh, narrow the protection. So here I'll refer, I'll refer back to that Barton Beebe paper again because he did some really important empirical work back around 2005, 2006. The paper was published. And what the Beebe paper suggested is in cases where the mark was inherently strong, it's like suggestive, arbitrary, fanciful, mm -hmm. but commercially weak, in most of those cases, and there's a small numbers problem, only 27 mm. cases out of the 330 looked at, in most of those cases, defendant prevails because the mark's commercially weak, and therefore we draw a fairly narrow circle of protection, and defendant's use ends up outside of that circle of protection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sounds almost like what you're describing with respect to fanciful marks, um, that the, there's almost a kind of like linguistic um, functionality to it, it seems like. Well, so I wrote my paper about the same time uh, that a that a scholar. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on her name now. Um, she and Tang. Um, I'm, I'm I mispronounce her first name all the time. I know I got it wrong again. Anyway, she had a piece that she presented at a conference where she thought the sound symbolism, actually the evidence was strong enough you would treat it as functional, mm -hmm. and elements that are functional, so trade dress, if I've shaped a chair in a certain way and mm -hmm. the shape of the chair is functional, we don't allow you to have protection in that even if you could otherwise show evidence of source significance. Genericness is sometimes lumped in as another type of functionality. Mm. Uh, her takeaway, she reads, she reads that evidence as stronger than I do, strong enough that you could make functionality determinations with it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite that strong. Mm -hmm. So I think the difference between our two papers would be uh, hers is a slam the brakes and mine is a tap the brakes. Kind of <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> so, that's the difference there. But, but I think 
if you were persuaded the evidence was strong enough, mm -hmm. I think you would be concerned that what you really have is somebody protecting functional elements, and that might be something uh, for policy reasons we don't want in mm -hmm. our trademark system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you end up proposing that courts should do with this evidence of kind of how people perceive meaning from raw sounds without having any actual lexical meaning. Right. So I, the, the, the modest proposal in that paper is basically that courts should admit the evidence, right? There's reason to think that, it, you know, if, 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 if litigants can find the experts to bring to, the, bring to bear, and this is something I think defendants end up benefiting from more than plaintiffs in most cases, mm -hmm. it's evidence that courts ought to give credence to and ought mm -hmm. to consider. Now... Do I think in every case it will be a win for the defendant? I don't think that's necessarily the so case. So what does the evidence show if I got the evidence and I convinced... And I what you would do is you would bring a linguistic expert who would say, look, the, the plaintiff's mark, uh, Swiffer, yeah. all right, uh, the S sound, the short I, those are things that communicate speed. And it may be that we would say, look, one of the things you're, you're advocating is it works quicker than a mop. It's a smaller unit. You just sweep it across the floor really quickly. So to the extent that those sounds are, if a court were otherwise disposed to consider that mark as fanciful, Mm -hmm. uh, what you would say is, look, my mark also has that same sound. Mm -hmm. Normally, the presumption would be, I'm duplicating the same sounds. Sounds at the start of the word tend to be heavier, uh, more dispositive of infringement that sounds in the middle or the end of the word. Um, it would be a, a, a small thumb on the scale in favor of a defendant to say, look, there's at least, at a minimum, to push back on this evidence of bad faith intent, mm -hmm. yeah. which tends to weigh fairly heavily in these cases. Can it move it from one category to just say it's actually suggestive because of those factors? I think you could make that argument, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. and, and how the argument would cash out, I think, would really depend on the evidence and, of course, depends on the litigants. I mean, this is a difficulty, right? We, we talk about cases as if they are certain things. We talk about doctrines as if they're set in stone. And, of course, once you see that, you know, you get litigants that get their hands on mm -hmm. things and you get experts that testify and you get juries involved, mm -hmm. you get courts involved and... And, and there is some uncertainty there in how they would play out. But that's, I think, the rough structure of the argument. Do you, do you think this would have, like, adopting this rule or even the stronger rule that this other scholar has proposed might drive people making decisions about what marks to use toward arbitrary marks and away from fanciful marks? I've wondered that, right? So there's, there's a whole um, industry companies that are uh, professional namers mm -hmm. and what they will do is client will come to them and say we want to make some widget or other and they'll have a bag full of names some of them they will compose kind of for this client some of them will be names they've composed for another client that mm -hmm. haven't haven't caught on you know they pull out the drawer and they they think and they engage in an experience that is in part you know the arcane science of marketing, where they're just trying to figure out, okay, what catches in the right sort of way. But one of the one of the inputs that they're using to determine whether these are the right marks is, do the sounds convey something consumers care about that would that would persuade a consumer that this is the this is the right sort of this is the product or this is the brand to pick in this product category. Huh. I have a different. I have a meta question. Okay. <laughs> All right. Your paper came out 2016. Why? No, it, it seems to me like if we have a system that is based on confusion, we should have thought of that 
150 years ago to why why did we build yeah. a system that based on assumption on confusion without talking to experts in other field that research confusion right well there's a path dependence to this, yes. right so the litigation happens so if you go back to the early history of trademark law in the United States uh, this is the Cliff Notes version yeah there were two kinds of marks there were technical trademarks and there were trade names and a technical trademark would fit into what I think we would call the arbitrary or fanciful category. And those received protection as trademarks under the early trademark statutes, end of the, end of the 19th century, start of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Trade names got a, a similar but weaker form of protection, unfair competition protection, where we were clearly looking for evidence of fraud or, or, or bad intent, right? Mm -hmm. You could only win an unfair competition case with some sort of evidence of bad intent, Historically, you could win a more technical trademark case without that. Uh -huh. um, the suggestive mark ends up being a stopgap between the two, right? But so what we have is courts who don't necessarily have a lot of evidence, where litigants aren't necessarily bringing in experts. And it's not... So the Edward Sapir paper that I talked about, this is the Mall Mill table case mm -hmm. situation, that was 1938. Uh -huh. no, okay. 23? 30, late 20s, early 30s when he did those studies, yes. okay? So... Early trademark law had already started to, you know, accrete some doctrines mm -hmm. based on how courts saw the world. Now, it wasn't until 1970, 71, 79 that the Abercrombie case came out where Judge Friendly kind of put those five mark categories. He was kind of kind yeah. of categorizing the field. But this is the way courts have been talking about these yeah. things for 80 years or so. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, I read a paper a while ago by Carla Gorman talking about sort of the development and ch changes in sort of design, you know, the design of trademarks and what marks actually looked like. Yeah. And the period you're talking about, like the 30s into the 40s, was a time of huge change right. in the way that companies went about branding right. for themselves. There, there was an explosion of, of branding roughly that same time. Uh, so part of it is courts trying to figure out not only what makes sense as a, from a doctrinal standpoint, but what makes sense as a commercial reality. Right. Uh, what do we do? Um, let me back up a bit as well. There's a tension between what I think we classically say trademarks do, which is lower search costs for consumers and incentivize mark owners to send consistent signals. There's a feedback loop, a virtuous feedback loop. Mark owners get protection. They get to keep competitors away from certain marks and certain product categories so that then consumers can rely on that mark, which then rewards the mark owner for sending a clear signal. Virtuous feedback loop, right? There are arguments, Mark McKenna has argued, that if you look at the history, it's all about protecting property rights of mark owners and not really about consumers at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I present these projects, these linguistic theory projects, and what I get as feedback is, well, you've just convinced me, really, that we don't care about consumers at all. I don't know if I buy your prescription here, <laughs> yeah. but I buy the argument that we have not fine-tuned trademark doctrine to really think about consumers. I think about trademark doctrine as kind of triangulating between three things. There's mark owner investments, there is consumer confusion, and there is, you know, maintaining a marketplace where we get enough entry from competitors, entry where we have distinctions between competitors' products, not where competitors, you know, where the new entrant is primarily relying on free riding or confusion, right? But if you if you distort that triangle too much in one direction, you end up with a pinch triangle and, mm -hmm. and I think less welfare overall. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely anecdotal, but I just feel like my experience says to me we're seeing more and more of a tendency of, you know, people adopting what would be ca uh, characterized as fanciful marks when they come up with word marks 
for their products. And I, I wonder if, if, is that like consistent with what you've seen? That is my sort of anecdotal experience consistent with what you've seen? And and if so, I mean, that seems like it makes the the observations that much more important and relevant. I haven't done a lot of empirical research in that nature. Now, there's a piece out by Barton Beebe and Jeannie Fromer yeah. where they've argued that what they see in the trademark register is a lot of crowding and if you get a lot of crowding, especially for words that are already familiar and that people already know and people already like, you know, words like Apple that might be a good arbitrary mark for a number of different products. If we've got a bunch of product category tranches and they are all full of, you know, the thousand most popular words, um, then what that forces potential entrants to do is they've got to start coining words. And that does require a certain amount of coining. Now, um, should our... It's interesting, when you look at the coining language, we tend not to say, I mean, you go back to the Supreme Court case, there's a famous case called the Trademarks case from the 1880s, mm-hmm. where Congress had been sloppy, apparently, in the justification for its first attempted federal trademark statute, where it had said, we're relying on Article One, Clause 8, Section 8, which is the Copyright and Patent Clause. Mm-hmm. The Supreme yeah. Court says, look, you're doing different things in trademark law. There isn't any creativity here, you're just picking a name for your products. Now, if you know anything about modern branding, the Supreme Court, if they were right in 1880, they're not right now. <laughs> and it may be that part of what's going on in the arbitrary or in the in the with regard to fanciful marks and the way courts talk about them is they are recognizing a certain amount of this creativity. If the push is based on necessity as opposed to creativity, should we think differently about it? Perhaps. The more we get those fanciful marks, I think it could be dangerous. It could be problematic to treat every one of them as a hyper-strong mark that gets extremely broad protection. Because what mm-hmm. happens then is you could have these fanciful marks filling up effectively multiple product categories for close product lines, right? Mm-hmm. If if we think the area is crowded and we need narrower marks, narrower tranches for the marks, one thing you could do is we find ways to narrow fanciful marks, narrow yeah. the scope of fanciful marks. Mm-hmm. And this might be the sort of argument a defendant could break. Mm-hmm. I think it should be persuasive. I am not a judge. I don't have this as much part of my portfolio, so you know, it's worth only its persuasive value. So, where are you planning to take this kind of list, uh, intersection of literary theory and trademark next? So, I've got one project in the back of my mind, and it's very, very early stage. This is vaporware, right? It's mm-hmm. just in my head, and I don't know when I start doing the research whether it'll cash out. We have protection for marks, uh, for famous marks, anti-dilution protection, we call it, right? Mm-hmm. So, if a mark is uh, so famous, and we haven't really put a number on so famous, but if you imagine 75% of consumers have recognized it off the top of their heads like Coca-Cola, that's a famous mark, mm-hmm. clearly. What we do with famous marks is we protect against blurring, which is to say somebody using the mark on a non-competing product category. Um, we pre- Even if there's no evidence of confusion, we still protect the mark owner from this blurring. Now, the reason to do that, uh, based on an old article by a guy named Schechter from the 1920s, is that the marks these marks can lose their distinctiveness if they start to get crowded at the edges. Mm. This isn't a crazy way to think about the world, and if you're trying to protect mark owner value, fair enough. There's been a pushback that maybe we shouldn't protect mark owner value, or that maybe dilution isn't well theorized. Yeah. I think what could be happening with marks that we protect from blurring because of their fame What's really happening is these are marks that have reached a point of ubiquity that they more or less are monosemous, which is just a term of art that means there really is only one potential trademark meaning. Where we might be suspicious about the evidence of confusion, but really it's a low level of confusion, or at least we think the mark has become famous enough that it ought to be monosemous. 
Now that's potentially a weak uh, potential defense for anti-dilution protection. I think what I'll find though, I've done very, very preliminary looks. I think what I'm going to find though is um, these linguistic theorists, they are by and large not persuaded that monosemi really works. See, one of the things that happens is marks change, or t sorry, j words generally change over time. They add meanings. Things that weren't pejorative like ass, you know, to describe a donkey, they've become pejorative in modern English. Uh, things that are pejorative in certain cultures are less pejorative used in certain communities, right? Uh, uh, there is an N-word that I will not say that in certain communities, in certain contexts, it's not offensive the same way it would be if I say it, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning of language changes over time. Monosemi presumes some concrete staticness to language mm -hmm. that I think is probably inappropriate. And I have argued for the same reason that there are terms that are generic at time one that could become source signifying at time two. Mm. The doctrine says I'm wrong. <laughs> I think linguistic theory says I'm right. Because <laughs> the sort of narrowing that happens over time where you have a broad term that yeah. becomes narrowed, mm -hmm. which is the same thing that would happen if you have a generic term that becomes a specific brand, happens all the time. Yeah. The word hound was once any sort of dog and then becomes you know, a particular hunting dog. Yeah. Girl was any child and then becomes a young female child, mm. right? So this sort of narrowing happens all the time and it can happen in brand context as well. So I've got a paper that says we need to recognize that language does change. Mm -hmm. And our trademark doctrine should reflect that. Now, mm -hmm. there's an is-ought problem there, right? The fact that things work this way in language, there might be policy reasons to push back on that anyway, but I'm interested in seeing whether linguistic theory can tell us anything helpful about dilution. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Jake, yeah. this has been yeah. really fascinating. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Thank you.